Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. Remember the African-American Democratic member of Congress who was busted with stacks of $100 bills wrapped up in tinfoil, frozen in the, his freezer? The compartment above, you know, his refrigerator. Remember, the, the police went in there and it was all over television. And, oh, my God, look at this corruption. This guy was taking money under the table. And he was a Democrat. And he was sentenced to 13 years in prison. Because his judge, Judge T.S. Ellis, said, quote, public corruption is a cancer. That would be the same judge sentencing a black politician to 13 years in prison who yesterday said that the white corrupt you know businessman and politician maker on multiple continents including you know some of the worst tyrants on earth Paul Manafort lived an otherwise blameless life the judge a Reagan appointee surprise surprise and this is the kind of judges i mean they are right now mitch mcconnell and donald trump are sh- and, and and mike pence are shoveling these people in their 30s with in many cases no trial experience no judicial experience in some some of them haven't even tried cases like brett kavanaugh shoveling them onto the federal bench it's nuts the democrats passed hr1 congressman pokan was on our program yesterday talking about it H.R. 1 is the major government reform, uh, ethics reform bill. Clean up elections, protect voting rights, strengthen ethics laws, and limit dark money in politics. And guess what? Not one Republican voted for it. Not even one Republican was willing to go on record and say, I am opposed to corruption in government. Not one. And then when they had their, uh, hey, okay, let's condemn anti-Semitism. Let's also condemn anti-Islamic, uh, whatever the word is for that, you know, uh, uh, trash talking, hate, hate, hate speech. As soon as they added Islam to it, nearly 30 Republicans in the House of Representatives said, oh, we can't vote for that. We've got to keep hating on those Muslims. Holy cow. I mean, you know, the Republican Party is explicitly, clearly, unambiguously, loudly showing and telling us who they are and what they're really all about. You heard about uh, how uh, Robert Hatch, the, the billi- or, excuse me, Robert Kraft, the billionaire owner of the New England Patriots, uh, sitting at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump at dinner with Shinzo Abe, And a whole lot of other venues. I mean, the guy's a a billionaire and Trump sucks up to other billionaires when when they'll pay attention to him. He desperately wants the approval of his class. Robert Kraft got busted for for having sex in a massage parlor down in Florida, apparently twice on video. It had been wired by the, I believe it was the state police in Florida. Turns out that the woman who owned that massage parlor, she had since sold it, but she owns a chain of them and a number of, and she still owns other ones, these uh, Asian massage parlors that are apparently uh, frequently used for human trafficking. 
She was having dinner with Trump, too. She's a member of Mar-a-Lago. She hangs out with Trump and Kraft. And he goes to her massage parlors and gets laid. And somehow all this, it seems like if Bill Clinton had done any of this when he was in the White House, or if his friends had done any of this, oh, my God. Can you imagine? I mean, it's just absolutely insane what's going on. And then there was this uh, great tweet by a uh, defense lawyer. In fact, I started following him this morning on, uh, on Twitter, who was pointing out that he has defended clients who got much, much longer sentences than Manafort did for much, much smaller crimes. Got Heckinger. He says, for context on Manafort's 47 months in prison, my client yesterday was offered 36 to 72 months in prison for stealing $100 worth of quarters from a residential laundry room. And then it's uh, Scott, H-E-C-H, uh, at Scott Heck is his Twitter handle. He then starts this thread where he goes through a list of all of his other clients or many of his other clients in the past who for essentially trivial and nonviolent crimes got much longer prison sentences than Paul Manafort got. Well, again, I say, you know, it's a Reagan-appointed judge who was basically taking the position of the defense during the trial, as you'll recall. He, was, he slapped down the prosecution on a number of cases. But not only did he uh, throw the book at Congressman Jefferson, the uh, African-American congressman who had 100,000 bucks in uh, ill-gotten gains. Manafort had tens of millions not only did he throw the book at him with a 60-month sentence, but apparently Eric Prince came before him and he dismissed the charges. We've got a problem with our judiciary, and I'm telling you, it's going to get a hell of a lot bigger as time goes on. Althea in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Althea, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. I watched you here from the state of Arizona. We call it a dry hate out here. And I have a question for you. What do you think about compassionate capitalism? You guys were tossing around words. It sounds like um, an oxymoron. Like a, like, well, a, like a phrase that the, where the two words are opposite meaning. I mean, I, I'm a baby boomer, and I was always taught capitalism was good. Mm-hmm. And so was I. I. And I'm a small business owner out here. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, what the sane and logical are trying to do and what the resubs are trying to brand us as socialism. And I say we should own it. I say we should, it, we're being compassionate. I know every day, you know, I donate, I'm a monthly donor to you guys. I've watched you guys since after, especially your show, Tom, after the last major election. Mm-hmm. And you made me stop and get involved and be an activist. And my older sister, who's in Sacramento, who's an activist up there, and she has a group called Biddies for Decency. And she kind of liked that name. What do you think, Tom? And what are other thoughts people are thinking about branding us? I love the idea of making capitalism more compassionate. And I think that's kind of the essence of, of FDR's New Deal and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. The reality right now is that I'm getting five or six emails a week right now just from Donald Trump forget about all the other Republicans, saying that the the Democrats are all in on socialism, they're trying to turn America into Venezuela, quack, 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 quack. And they've essentially proclaimed, the Republican Party, that this is going to be their election strategy in 2020. They are going to brand every Democrat out there as a socialist, regardless of whether they're progressive or not. They're going to brand middle-of-the-road Democrats, uh, you know, socialists. They will call Joe Biden a socialist. They will call Tim Ryan a socialist. They don't care. This is what they're going to do. And so I think that we need to be embracing that word and giving it meaning by talking about our socialist public schools, our socialist public roads, our socialist infrastructure projects, our socialist fire departments and police departments. All of these things are, are good socialism and our socialist Medicare and Social Security systems that we want to protect from the predations of capitalism. So I'm more inclined to try to resurrect and rehabilitate that word 
then come up with a new one, Althea. But I like your compassionate capitalism. Have How you... about compassionate socialism? <laughs> compassionate socialism is great. Yeah, or compassionate democratic socialism. I love the compassion part. It speaks to the we're all in this together, which is, you know, at the core of, of, of Democratic Party philosophies and very much outside the perimeter of Republican philosophy, which is all about I got mine and to hell with everybody else. So, Althea, thanks. It's a great contribution to the, to the conversation. And thank you for watching us there in Phoenix. I appreciate it. Just wanted to give you an update on what's going on with Saudi Arabia. There is so much news associated right now with the Saudis. John Abizade is the retired general who was nominated to be Trump's first ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And he went before Congress yesterday and basically turned into a, what Bob Ney described as a bipartisan rant against Saudi Arabia's gangster-like abuses. They pressed Abizade on the kingdom's domestic repression, lashings, electrocutions, beatings, whippings, sexual abuse, raids, the alleged detention and torture of activists and royal family members, and most recently, the torture of a U.S. citizen. And, you know, not to mention this devastating war with Yemen and cutting diplomatic and investment relations with Canada because they called out the kingdom on their human rights, ordered the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon, triggered a spat between the Gulf allies that undermines U.S. efforts. Marco Rubio said about Mohammed bin Salman, he's gone full gangster. This is the Republican senator from Florida. He says he's gone full gangster and it's difficult to work with a guy like that. Meanwhile, Europeans, Canada and Australia, this was uh, all 28 European Union members plus Canada and Australia. The only really fully developed country that's lacking from this list is the United States. Um, just passed a resolution in the United Nations calling on Saudi Arabia to release 10 activists and cooperate with the UN-led investigation into the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So, uh, you know, I'm not expecting the Saudis to do that, but this is what the rest of the world is calling for. The Daily Beast is reporting that officials and staffers of the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh said that they were not given any details of Jared Kushner's trip to Saudi Arabia last week when he went and hung out with Mohammed bin Salman. This is according to three different sources familiar with the trip, and that is causing Congress and people in the embassy to be very worried about what is Jared Kushner talking to this young princeling about. Meanwhile, an American woman from Washington State who taught at a women's university in uh, Saudi Arabia after she married a Saudi businessman and gave birth to a daughter you know, the two of them, she got a divorce while in Saudi Arabia. And now, quoting Ben Hubbard in the New York Times, because of the kingdom's so-called guardianship laws, which give men great power over women, she is unable to use her bank account. This American citizen is unable to leave Saudi Arabia. She's unable to travel with her doctor or even seek legal help. She is completely stuck. Her husband's left, let her residency uh, visa expire, meaning she's lost access to her bank account. She can't get authorization to leave the country. This is absolutely terrible. And then, of course, Mark Sumner over at Daily Co's writing, uh, and the kind of the headline says the whole thing, is Jared Kushner himself responsible for the dismemberment and death of uh, the reporter Jamal Khashoggi? And that, plus yesterday's Washington Post, or day before yesterday's Washington Post editorial board op-ed, Google and Apple are letting men surveil women in Saudi Arabia. There's an app that women have to use to get permission from men to do things like leave the house. And Google and Apple are apparently all in on this, and they're being called out by the Washington Post. So some really startling news about Saudi Arabia. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-G-O-L-D. 
Tom Harmon here with you. Tuesday, as I recall, it was a couple days ago, I read an article on Daily Kos about the age of consent, or the age of marriage, rather, in Idaho, and how a state representative was trying to raise that to, uh, as I recall, 16, to be at least 16 in order to get a marriage license, and how Republicans voted that down. And I had a number of people, after I went on a rant about this, call in and say, wait a minute, I've got the uh, Idaho state law right here in front of me, and it says that you've got to be I don't recall if it was 16 or 17, but whatever it was, that, that it, it was already there. And, and so I was like, well, what's going on with this? And, and so on the line with us is Representative Melissa Wintrow. She's the uh, Idaho State Representative from the 19th District, a Democrat in the legislature of Idaho. Legislature.idaho.gov is that website. Representative Wintrow, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too. So I understand that you were the principal author of this legislation that would have essentially put an end to 13-year-olds getting married in Idaho. First of all, is it actually a fact that 13, 14, 15-year-olds, mostly girls, are actually still in this day and age getting married in Idaho? Well, those numbers have declined, but um, it is still legal to do so. So that's what I was trying to do, actually, is create a floor for our marriage age. And I worked with the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence and drafted legislation to create a floor. And what I thought was pretty... Uh, conservative legislation. I know there are a couple states now that have gone to 18 as the marriage age, which makes sense because that's the age of majority in most states for all kinds of things from voting to cigarettes to signing contracts and so forth. So it makes sense. But you also have to look at what you think you can pass in the political landscape that you're in. And so I thought, well, let's at least create a floor, no one under 16. But if a 16- or 17-year-old wanted to get married. They were consenting. Parent consented. Also have a court look for it, mostly because we're trying to prevent any kind of coercion or abuse. Mm. And if that all three of those things passed, then okay. And we would align with our statutory rape law because it wouldn't make sense to allow somebody older to get a judge's approval to marry somebody and then kind of slip through that loophole. So the fact of the matter is that a 13-year-old, arguably even a 12-year-old in Idaho, could legally get married right now. They need their parents' consent and a judge's signing off on it, which has happened in the past and certainly in the relatively recent past. Maybe not 12-year-olds, but, you know, 15, 16s, um, 14-year-olds. How did your Republican colleagues respond to your proposing this legislation to just, you know, bring the marriage age up to 16 in Idaho? I had two prominent Republicans co-sponsoring, one arguably a senator who's one of the most conservative senators in the State House, Senator Thane, and then Representative Carolyn Troy. Most of the arguments that I heard from my colleagues were they didn't want the court involved at a 16 or 17-year-old level. They thought parents should be able to control the decisions of their kids, and they did not like the statutory rape alignment because in our state, it says a 16-year-old may not consent to anyone three years older Mm. and a 17-year-old not three years older. Otherwise, you could be charged with statutory rape. So, again, it doesn't make any sense to allow a 30-year-old to marry a 17-year-old and get past that other law. And um, I I think just common sense, developmentally, I remember what I was like as a graduate from college and a 17-year-old. Yeah. Huge developmental difference. And I think, again, when we look at the detriment, especially to girls, I mean, these are disproportionately young girls that are getting married versus boys, right? And if we look at the negative impacts to girls, I think we owe it to our state to look out for the most vulnerable and make sure that people's rights are being afforded. And that means child rights. Yeah, the marriage advocacy group Unchained at Last has been doing research on this, and they estimated that during the decade of 2000 to 2010, 248,000 children were married in the United States. They're defining children as under 17 years old. Actual data from 38 states showed more than 167,000 children wed in that decade. There are 12 states that did not provide data for this. 
85% were girls, 77% yeah. of whom were married to adult men that would be no longer teenagers, over, over 21. Kentucky, right. Washington State, Florida, and Texas join Idaho in the, quote, 13-year-olds get married here, end quote, club, while Louisiana and South Carolina reported marriages recently where at least one party was just 12 years old. So you're saying that your Republican colleagues objected to this and, in fact, voted down this legislation, killed this legislation because they objected to the court being involved. That's kind of a libertarian argument, I guess. You know, we don't yeah. want big government in our face. But don't you think that there's also a huge piece of misogyny in here, that this is the last vestige of the absolute control of men over women? I mean, if a, if a girl gets married when she's 13, 14, 15 years old, and particularly if she becomes pregnant, her life is over as an independent entity uh, for all you know, intents and purposes. At least it seems to me. I mean, she hasn't even finished a simple education. Well, and I guess that's what I was saying. The detriment to girls is really significant. We already have a wage disparity in our state, or excuse me, our country. And we know that if a girl gets married below 18, I mean, just the dramatic increase, they're not going to continue their education, which impacts their ability to earn money and to take care of themselves. I remember when I was appointed as Boise State's first women's center director, I worked with a lot of women returning to school. If I had a dime for every woman who said, I didn't finish my education, I got married young, I got kids, my husband left me, and now I'm left to care for them, I need my education. Uh, I heard that story over and over. So I am concerned. We, we need to make sure that we have uh, opportunities for girls to pursue their dreams and education unfettered. And then, you know, you read stories where there are some parents aren't looking out for the interests of their kids. Mm. Maybe they're abusive. And maybe they, you know, can't take care of them, so they marry them off young. That's why I think the court is so important there. Um, again, I don't think anybody under 16 should be getting married, period. I, I think it probably should be 18, but I was trying to provide a compromise to at least put the court size on it. And, the, and a judge testified that uh, it's not a long process, but it is an important one. Um, it's another set of eyes. Some judges will take the parties separately so they can chat and make sure it's uncoerced and, and it's not an abusive situation. Um, again, I'm interested in safety of children yeah. and making sure we're looking out for the most vulnerable among us. So, you know, the, the bottom line here, you have to jump through some hoops, but it's legal to get married at basically 13 in Idaho. You're trying to put a stop to that. We have a situation across the country where uh, over 100,000, 167,000 yeah. in just one decade, children got married. There's a half a dozen states, a little more than a half a dozen states where this is possible. And you're trying to put an end to this. Your Republican right. colleagues shot that down. And now that this has gotten some publicity, are any of them reconsidering? You know, people came to me afterward like, you know, I get what you're trying to do, but, you know, I just don't think the government should be involved. And, and folks did not like the statutory rape alignment. I mean, some mm. folks believe like a 23-year-old should be able to marry a 17-year-old. And I'm just, I'm just like, hey, why don't you just wait till they're through college? We, right. we had a young woman who came and testified and shared a story about her two friends who um, had gotten married under 18 and were in abusive situations and so forth. So, um, again, I thought this was a modest compromise, sets the floor. And, and the thing that I'm, I'm a little bit dumbfounded about is that um, we just passed a bill yesterday that requires parents to opt in to sexual health education. And I'm just kind of at a loss because... You mean kids don't okay. get sexual health education in school unless their parents specifically ask for it? It's not well, the default? Well, that's, that's what this bill would ask. I mean, right now you have to opt out if right. you're, you know, you have some, you know, a disagreement with curriculum. But this opt-in procedure would create a lot of red tape and potentially problems for access to knowledge and really good information. So I, I was just kind of at a loss that we would uh, we would make parents opt in for sexual health education, but we couldn't pass that marriage and bill. And did that pass? Um, it went through the House. It goes to the Senate uh, now. So. Is, the, is the House um, controlled by Republicans in Idaho? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's... There's 70 members, there are 14 Democrats. Okay, so, so that explains a lot. State yeah. Representative Melissa Wintrow, she's uh, representing the 19th District of Idaho, uh, legislature.idaho.gov. Representative Wintrow, thanks so much for being with us today. 
Thank you. I really appreciate your coming in and helping me clean up what seemed to me a little bit of confusion, but it, it all makes perfect sense. And thanks for doing such a great job in the Idaho legislature there. We need more legislators like you. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times by Urshad Manji. This is from Chapter 2. It's titled Our Division Problem. Math teachers tell us that to solve a division problem, we must find the common denominator. From its birth, this nation's common denominator has been diversity. I'm not a fan of that word. Neighbor recently sniped. It divides people. Well, that's one slant on diversity. The word itself comes from the Latin, to turn aside, or as some take it, to splinter and separate. But nature would disagree with that interpretation. Every afternoon, Lil, you meander in the park. Here, diversity is the lubricant of a humming engine. Do you breathe in just one aroma? How about two? Five? That's some head tilt you've got going, Lily Bean. She's got a bunch of uh, rescue dogs, and she's writing this book to them, uh, FYI. You're catching on to my crazy talk, aren't you? It's bananas to isolate and enumerate the smells enveloping you. None of them on its own captures the magic of the intermingling whole. You're gaga about the park exactly for its kaleidoscope of scents that jostle with each other and sometimes get up your nose. See where I'm going with this? Diversity itself doesn't divide. It's what we do with diversity that splits societies apart or stitches them together. That paradox is, to do diversity honestly, we can't excuse me, the paradox is, to do diversity honestly, that we can't be labeling all of diversity's critics as bigots. You disagree, Lil? Well, you're entitled to your opinion, but you haven't let me explain mine. Welcome to the real world, you say? Well, this isn't exactly the real world, is it? You're a conversing canine, for God's sake. Okay, okay, you're right, enough of my defensiveness. Getting my backup won't help you hear me. But if I'm going to work on me, then I need assurance of a fair hearing from you. Deal? Note to self, never expect the mother-daughter relationship to be a picnic in the park. As I was about to explain, Lil, there's more than one way to look at a situation. Some people oppose diversity because they are bigots. Others, though, are skeptical of diversity because how we, its champions, practice it. We're fixated on labeling, and labeling drains diversity of its unifying potential. Since the founding of the U.S. Republic, Americans have extolled the idea of, of unity in diversity. E pluribus unum, out of many, one became a gallant motto for the union of the original 13 colonies. No argument, Lil, the colonists were themselves colonizers of native people, of black people, of women and of poor white men. I acknowledge that such labels didn't drop from the clear blue sky. These groups bore the brunt of keeping the United States united. So I'll keep it real too. E pluribus unum has always been an uphill battle. Americans fought a gruesome civil war over the obscenity of slavery whose promoters reduced human beings to labels. A century earlier, drawing unity from diversity proved to be onerous business of a different sort. It demanded that ardent revolutionaries check their egos. Just before voting on the Constitution, the framers listened to a letter from Benjamin Franklin. He, in turn, had somebody read it out loud. Addressing each signatory as if speaking to him in person, Franklin confessed in the letter, quote, I do not entirely approve of this convention at present, but, sir, I am not sure I shall never approve it. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right but found to be otherwise. Take a moment to digest this, Lily. A world-class rebel states publicly that he doesn't know it all, that he's missing something obvious to others, that he might be wrong. Was Ben Franklin written off as a wimp? Nope. His fellow framers knew the value of humility in making the impossible happen. For America's revolutionaries, breaking free from a British despot would be the relatively simple part. Much harder would be replacing despotism with something democratic and doable. The framers' solution? To enshrine and institutionalize diversity of viewpoint. Their logic? In a republic of vastly different regions, cultures, peoples, and perspectives, there's nation-building power in airing disagreements. Diversity of opinion as a common denominator. Sheer genius, Lil. In Why Societies Need Dissent, the legal scholar Cass Sunstein describes this funky formula as, quote, the framer's greatest innovation. Americans, I'm thrilled to tell you, still aspire to that vision. In June 2018, the Harris Poll released findings about what unites and what divides our country. Among the factors that unite, being open to alternative viewpoints. But the deflating reality is people generally mean that 
other people should be open to their viewpoints. Today, living the revolutionary ideal seems a non-starter, and for various reasons. Hands down, the most controversial reason is the changing makeup of America. It's a landmine of fraught labels, frail identities, and engulfing emotions. Can we talk about it? In this country, brown, black, and multiracial babies outnumber white babies. Beyond our major cities, small towns have started to mix it up. Take Storm Lake, Iowa. The editor of its community newspaper estimates that, quote, 88% of children in our elementary schools are children of color. We speak 21 languages, end quote. Sarah Smarsh, a journalist from Kansas, says that in the past 10 years alone, and thanks to the rise of agricultural agribusiness, her farming community has become home to workers from Mexico, Central America, and the Middle East. That's a bundle of change in a flash of time. Thank God America has a history of muddling through. Problem is, Americans can't depend on the past to predict that the future will be tickety-boo. Sure, some prejudice has subsided as successive waves of migrants have integrated. And she continues from there. The book, Don't Label Me, by Irshad Manji. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. We are taking a break here for a half hour or thereabouts to talk with Irshad Manji as our great mind today in our Conversations of the Great Minds series. Her book is Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times, and it's absolutely brilliant. We made it one of our uh, book report books that uh, we share little clips of. Irshad, welcome to the program. Tom, it is wonderful to be back with you. It's been a few years, so I'm glad we're catching up. Indeed, me too. Thank you so much. First of all, I saw your tweet just a moment ago that you're going to come on and that you thought that Representative Omar's situation would come up. Let me just toss that to you. What does all this mean to you? Maybe you should first start out by recapping very quickly for people who don't know what we're talking about, what happened. Right. So, Ilan Omar is a freshman uh, congresswoman from Minnesota. She is a refugee and a Somali-American and a Muslim. We should not label her just for those reasons. She is much more than that, obviously, as any human being is. That said, she is getting a ton of criticism and has been over the last couple of weeks for statements that she has made that many people believe rehash ancient, ugly stereotypes about Jews. So, for example, a couple of weeks back, she said that we should be looking into the corrupting influence of big money in politics, and she cited APAC, the American-Israel Political Action Committee, which is a very pro-Israel lobby here in the United States. She cited them. But she didn't cite, for example, the NRA, uh, the National Rifle Association, and the money, you know, it gives to politicians in order to have them vote their way, etc. She did that in her apology, but that was too late for many people. Another stereotype she's now accused of indulging in, she said on a panel the other day that she wants to challenge the pressure uh, that forces people to, you know, have dual loyalty, to be loyal to a foreign country, as she put it, namely Israel. And these stereotypes of Jews as not loyal citizens of the country they're living in, or Jews who buy influence through their money, these are all ways that Jews throughout history have been slandered. And many fear that that is the thin edge of the wedge, that that will, if left unchallenged, will eventually lead to the Holocaust all over again. So that's a controversy. You've asked me what I think. Well, there's lots to think about this. One is that she no doubt 
has relitigated these ugly tropes about Jews. And because she does this, what seems like repeatedly, it seems that she knows what she's doing, which is very disheartening. At the same time, she has apologized in the past, and she has, along the way, raised important questions. Questions about what many of us feel are the corrupting influences of money in politics and so forth. So the question is, how do you deal with this? Do you simply condemn her or do you acknowledge that she's raising important questions and correct her about the stereotypes that she has either intentionally or unintentionally, but at this point I do think it's intentionally, put out there. Precisely because, Tom, I don't believe that it's best to label people and then react on the basis of those labels. I think that we would all do well to acknowledge the important questions that she's raising generally and then to explain to her that you can still raise those questions without indulging in these myths about Jews. And if you think that I'm sort of soft-pedaling it or I'm treating her with kid gloves or anything like that, just know that I would have agreed with you a few years ago. I would have simply lambasted uh, this woman. But one of the things I've learned over the years is that if all we're doing is berating instead of relating, then we're not actually going to change anybody's mind. Uh, nobody is insulted into taking a different point of view. And so I think by congratulating her on the important questions that she has brought up, you lower the emotional defenses of her and, importantly, her supporters, so that in another round of engagement, they'll be able to hear what you now have to say about the unacceptability of these stereotypes of Jews. That's quite an analysis. And it does open a whole lot of really interesting questions. For example, what other country has the equivalent of an APAC in the United States that has the equivalent of that kind of political influence? I don't mm -hmm. know of any. I mean, there may be one, right. um, but to the right. best of my well, knowledge. It may be that Saudi Arabia, you know, because of its riches, which uh, uh, oil riches, right. you know, maybe sloshing around with money on Capitol Hill. But that's a dubious comparison, right? Nobody wants to be sure. compared with Saudi Arabia. They're as corrupt as corrupt gets. So do we hold Israel to the, or the Israeli lobby right. to the same standard? Well, and, and, and there's the other issue, too, that my take on it originally was that she was criticizing some of Israel's policies and some of right. their outside influence in the United States, rather than criticizing Jews and not having grown up in the United States, not being familiar with, I mean, she, she didn't even grow up in the West, right? Not being familiar with this whole kind of psychic gestalt zeitgeist mm -hmm. in which we live, that she was saying things that were unintentionally anti-Semitic or could be interpreted that way. That, that was my take on it. I didn't think that she was being intentionally anti-Semitic. But I right. and, may and, well be wrong. At I mean, that it's... time, well, and at that time, I didn't think so either. But what I did say to people who, you know, asked me what I thought was, you know, instead of censoring her, instead mm -hmm. of bearing down on her and telling her to just shut up, what we ought to be doing is reveling in the freedom of speech that she has, because the virtue of free speech, Tom, is that in people who use it and ultimately abuse it. Um, always are compelled by their freedom of speech to push the envelope too far. And at that point, we'll know if she truly is an anti-Semite. Right. Well, back then, I don't think it would have been fair to conclude on the basis of one or two of these statements that she was an anti-Semite. I'm frankly uh, less convinced now. I'm more convinced that she is one simply because she continues to make statements that, again, revive ancient myths about Jews. Yeah. And surely, surely after the first couple of stumbles, she would have gotten a briefing from her highly educated staff about what these stereotypes are and to avoid them as she tries to make a valid point. Yeah, it's a good point. We're talking with Irshad Manji. Her most recent book, Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times. And it is an incredible conversation. You note that diversity can be both a polarizing issue and a unifying one. It's interesting, uh, Louise and I were walking into work this morning into the studio and, I, and there was a penny on the ground and I haven't seen a penny on the ground.
around since I was a kid, and there was always this, you know, <laughs> it's good luck to pick up a penny. And right. so I picked it up, and the back, I'd never seen a penny that looked quite like that on the back, and it's just, I guess I don't have, I don't get much change these days. But on the back, it was just the shield, and it said mm -hmm. E Pluribus Unum, out of many one. And I said, wow, you know, they've emphasized diversity on the back of the new penny, apparently. And I thought that was kind of cool, and I was wondering when it happened and whether or not it was a political statement and what Donald Trump would think about it. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, I did not know that a new penny was being minted, and moreover, that it would be you know, promoting this is really the motto of the early American republic, out of many, one. And as you can see, given that it was the motto for these United States, that even in the founders' time, you know, they were celebrating a degree of diversity, but not for the sake of indulging in difference. They were acknowledging that, you know, people from different regions, different traditions, different religions, different cultures are coming together to form one nation. As Cass Sunstein put it in this wonderful book, Why Societies Need Dissent, the framers' greatest innovation was that they relied on airing of differences. They relied on disagreement as a way to bring people together so that nobody felt unheard. That is a level of psychological intelligence that really took some special people to, you know, enact. And that was what our framers did. And if we were really living up to their legacy, we too, today, would be taking disagreement as an invitation to engagement, not as a reason or, frankly, an excuse to walk away or roll our eyes or hurl more labels at each other. Except when that disagreement is patently offensive. I mean, when that disagreement is, say, a neo-Nazi shouting mm -hmm. Jews will not replace us. Mm -hmm. How else do you respond? It, I mean, this is a, a large question, I guess. And, it's and, a very well, large question. And I will say, of course, that, you know, sometimes you really do have to walk away or if that neo-Nazi is brandishing a gun, perhaps run away. I would note that there can be a variety of different kinds of agreements. There can be disagreements right. that are predicated on hateful perspectives. There could be disagreements that are simply uh, predicated on on respectful and legitimate differences. There can be diff uh, disagreements that are based on one or the other party believing something that isn't objectively true, but they still have the belief of it. And those aren't necessarily categories, they're points on a spectrum, potentially an infinite number of categories. How do we know how to engage or disengage or... How do we know who's who, right? Yeah, and what to, and what to yeah. do when. Right, brilliant. So. My simple sort of answer to that, and I'll dive more deeply into it uh, in a second, is you don't actually know who's who until you risk conversing with them. And after a few rounds, you will know if they're coming from a place of sincerity, of genuine belief in their point of view, or if they're just trying to game you. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. You asked me, right? Uh, well, surely you can't, you know, simply convert someone out of being a white supremacist. As it turns out, in the book, and don't label me, I tell the story of a young man who was a nationalist, a white nationalist. He was raised that way by his parents. And he reformed himself because for a number of years, he was befriended on campus, on his college campus, by an Orthodox Jew who would invite this young man over for Friday night or Shabbat dinners. And knowing full well what this young man stood for, his Jewish friend nonetheless engaged in conversation with him, as did other people around the table. That's not to say that they allowed him to get away with crap. Rather, it's the way they corrected him. It's what they said and how they said it that over time built trust. And because of that trust, because they didn't jump down his throat, he realized that he really needs to be reconsidering his position. And ultimately, he did. And now he is one of the more vocal anti-racist activists in this country. So my point is that you can never write anybody off. That's not to say, Tom, that everybody in the, under the sun deserves your time and your energy. Not at all. But here's a challenge that I'd like our listeners to think about. 
between now and 2020, will each of us take the time to develop just one, just one friendship with somebody on the other side of the political aisle? (laughs) Just one. And when I say friendship, I don't mean meet them for a coffee and a debate. I mean, ask them questions. Deep listening. to what they have to say. Deep listening and listening, therefore, to understand and not to win. That way, you'll glean a lot more information from them about why they value what they value and how you can reframe your arguments down the road with those values so that they can hear them. Amen. When was the last time you replaced your toothbrush? Do you always brush twice a day for a full two minutes? You know, paying attention to these good habits has a huge impact on your health. Introducing Quip, it's spelled Q-U-I-P, the new electric toothbrush that helps to fix the brushing habits that most of us get wrong. Quip does this with a lightweight and sleek design, simple time vibrations, and guiding pulses to give you a perfect two-minute clean. Bulkier electric brushes have awkward charging stands, modes you don't need, and cost five times as much. Quip starts at just $25, and you can get brush head refills automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for only five bucks, and shipping's free. Quip has been featured in GQ, Oprah's O-List, and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. So go to getquip.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, right now and get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Tom. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom. Literally your title, Don't Label Me. You made the comment earlier on about uh, when we were talking about Representative Omar about, you know, she's this, this and this, but she's much more than that. And we really shouldn't just go with these labels. And yet there is this uh, biologically, apparently hardwired thing in Mm -hmm. all of us. I'm I'm guessing you're familiar with the uh, white rat, black rat study that came out about two weeks ago. Maybe a month ago? Uh, two weeks ago? No, actually, I'm not. Tell oh, me. This, this is fascinating. Um, they, they developed a little tube that was a trap that would hold a rat, and it could be opened from the outside by another rat. And so okay. they put this trapped rat in, and the, the other rats would always let the rat out. So then they trapped, but they'd always done it with white lab rats. So then they put a black lab rat in the, in the tube. The white rats didn't let it out. They would have let it starve to death. So they flipped it and did it, you know, with black rats with a white. It's the same mm-hmm. problem. So then they raised mm-hmm. a litter of rat pups where they swapped out some of them with the mothers so that they grew up with, you know, white and black rats both, you know, suckling at the same mother. And right. those rats saved the other rat regardless of whether it was a white rat or a black rat. And wow. yeah. And so, you know, this is this is happening at the level of DNA, basically. I mean, you know, we're mammals and rats are mammals, but there's a huge spectrum between the two of us that covers, you know, right. probably hundreds of millions of years of evolution. So right. um, and, and so in the you know, we only have about two minutes left. I'm sorry. But mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. understanding how deeply this stuff is, you know, the instinct to label is probably tied to a survival instinct. How do we deal with it? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, our ancient brains uh, needed uh, back on the savanna to detect every little noise and to figure out instantly if that is a threat to my security. Um, well, we've essentially got the same brains today, uh, though a very, very different society. So I say let's work with biology, not against it. The first thing to do Whenever you're feeling uncomfortable because of a, an argument that is made uh, and you disagree with it, take a deep breath. You're slow jamming your ancient brain. You are slowing the blood rush that is going on inside of you. And only after uh, that deep breath do you even think about responding. Um, and the second thing to do is to remember that just as you have this ancient brain and nobody should be pouncing on you because of our biological proclivity to label, so you ought not to be pouncing on other people. We have to go first, and that means truly listening. And here's the thing. When we do that, Tom, when we truly listen, we are, um, we are tapping into uh, the most ironclad law of human psychology, which is if you want to be heard, you 
first need to hear. It's really that simple, but it's also obviously hard because you're triggered, biologically speaking, to, you know, spit back. Um, and, but we can control ourselves. We are not lab rats. We do have the free will to, find, to figure out, you know, what is the best thing to do in this situation. And when in doubt, and even when not in doubt, step back and just listen. You'll be amazed how often you are listened in turn when you do that first. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Irshad Manji, the book, Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for Divided Times. Thank you so much for being with us today. Tom, thank you. I look forward to speaking again. Me too. It's been a great conversation, and thank you again. Julie in Austin, Texas. Hey, Julie, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to uh, our thank you for watching us on Free Speech TV. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to bring awareness to something really great that was passed, believe it or not, by both the House and the Senate last week. It's called the Natural Resources Management Act, mm-hmm. and it permanently funds what's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And just to explain, that's like a one of the major funding packages for most of the environmental and parks and outdoor projects in literally just about every county in the United States. Uh, Even in this very partisan atmosphere, this act got passed because literally every county benefits from this fund. And it's been one of those funds that um, you had to reauthorize from time to time. Mm -hmm. So this is significant because it it permanently authorizes it. And it protects just about 2 million acres of land. So it's very significant. And this particular act also added about a million acres of land Mm -hmm. to the protection. So this has already passed both the House and Senate. It's on its way to the president? Yes. That's great yes, news. That's why I'm calling. I'm calling that, because I really, really would like people to call the White House and encourage Trump to sign it. Okay, there um, you go. Because it'd be it'd be fantastic if, um, because like I said, it, it creates new national monuments, it creates new national park space, it creates that's you know, new land. I mean, it's, it's really, really fantastic. And must uh, be a lot of good stuff in Republican are, states for Mitch McConnell to push that through. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the heads up on that. Mike in Goose Creek, South Carolina. Hey, Mike, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Hi, I'm almost 80 years old, and I grew up as socialism, not a dirty word. My grandfather was an old-fashioned socialist. So was mine. It's one of the reasons my dad became a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Sorry. And my grandfather used to talk to me a lot about it, and he used to give me all kind of literature. And it was all very progressive, you know. I mean, they were ahead of their time. They suggested Social Security way back in the 1920s. Yeah. So I've always been a very liberal Democrat, and I sure don't want to go to the center. How would you define the center, Mike? I still don't know what the hell that means. I don't want to go there either, but I'm not even sure what these people are talking about. Are they talking about the center being those politicians who take a lot of money from corporations and billionaires? I think they're talking about DLC. But the DLC was all really all about taking money from big corporations, just making sure that they were, quote, clean corporations, white-collar corporations. It's okay to take money from Google, but not BP. Yeah. Well, I was in Cleveland when a DLC convention was being held in Cleveland, and they wouldn't let the United Auto Workers into that convention. And the auto workers were actually picketing that convention. Amazing. What year was that, Mike? Do you remember? Oh, that has to be in... um, Is that during the Clinton administration? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. This is terrible. Mike, thank you. That's the center. You're right. Thank you. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And uh, every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. 
And uh, you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, we also have free podcasts of the program. It's a, it's a one hour best of. It boils the whole show down to about an hour. And that's available through uh, any of the places where you would normally get your podcast. And that's, that's free also, uh, no charge for that. So we're, we're trying to get the word out. So many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So let's check in with uh, Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, calling in from UN headquarters in New York. You can check out his two minute podcast every day uh, by plugging Luke Vargas into wherever you get your podcast. Luke, uh, welcome back to the program. Thank uh, you. Bloomberg is saying Trump has adopted a cost plus 50 strategy in negotiations with nations where we have military bases like Germany, Japan, South Korea. What's he talking about? And this is like taking the complex negotiations that a country like the U.S. would be engaged in with dozens of other countries, the really delicate talks to, in most cases, our allies about how to kind of help each other out and boiling all of that down to a Trumpian sort of catchphrase, a strategy which is being called cost plus 50, which is instead of saying, hey, this is what it costs for us to be in South Korea. Let's calculate what kind of benefit the South Korean you know, public gets from our military presence there, our deterrent effect. We'll see how wealthy the country is. And we'll just sort of work out something that feels equitable. The Trump administration is apparently, uh, and this is uh, coming from the White House and making a lot of people at state and defense very uncomfortable, saying cost plus 50, take, the, the host country would have to pay the full cost of housing all of the American soldiers plus a 50% convenience fee. And they're not calling it that, but in the Bloomberg piece, it was referred to by State Department officials as the privilege of hosting the United States, end mm. quote. This is a trial balloon from the administration. People are, this is what Trump really wants. He wants to put it out there. He wants to see if the base gobbles up this notion that, like, you know, the tough tone he's used with NATO, stick it to him, make him pay. On the other hand, though, I think there is deep dissatisfaction within the rank and file of the U.S. government that they're being asked to turn to allies. There's an expectation the U.S. is seeking budget cuts at the U.N. We want NATO countries to pay more for their defense, but we're not asking them something, you know, to quadruple or times by five or six their total bill. And that I think maybe the reason we're getting such good reporting from Bloomberg here is a lot of sources within the State Department and military think this is absolutely outlandish and insulting for allies who, in many cases, don't love hosting the U.S. I mean, they get some benefit right. for it, but we should be sensitive that our presence in a lot of countries is a complex political dynamic there in this cost plus. Well, and in many cases, our, our presence in other countries is to use, use as staging for other things. Sure. I mean, our, our base in Germany is used to stage for the you know, for all yeah. Yeah, yeah for all the stuff that we're doing in the Middle East, for example. There may be a, a bright side to this, though, Luke. If you look at the history of empire, empires tend to collapse. You know, countries that that have literally spread themselves across the known world, and mm -hmm. and there are six or eight you know example solid examples of this that you can look at in history. Empires tend to collapse one of two ways: either they uh, overextend themselves and they and they go down in flames in war in wars on multiple fronts, which is what happened to Hitler, or they go through a, an attrition kind of process and they slowly decompress. And this is what happened to the United Kingdom and to France as well, uh, you know, a century earlier. And, you know, there's a big debate about whether the United States empire should be shrinking. I mean, we've got over 700 military bases around the world. And even a lot of, you know, gung-ho folks in the military are saying that may be a couple hundred more than we should have. So if this leads to a conversation or even a process about reducing America from being a worldwide empire to simply being a nation with strong national integrity that protects its national interests, that might not be a bad thing. 
Yeah, and I would encourage your listeners. I did an interview on this several years ago with a guy named David Vine, who did a great, but wrote a great book called Base Nation, and talks about how the U.S. military footprint overseas really, kind of, in many ways, undermines American interests. So I think there's something there. I guess if, if I were to sort of be in the administration and pushing a policy, I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for more compensation in some of these cases. Um, particularly when hosting troops in a certain country diminishes America's moral standing. I would say, you know, having the, the, the fleets in, in Bahrain is sort of a stain on America's choice of allies. Yeah, it's a patriarchal uh, right dictatorship. Country. So if you went to a country like that and said, look, I mean, we're, we're having some qualms here. I know it's useful for you, useful for us, but how about you pay up? So, you know, and mm. if they decided not to, maybe we would say, okay, well, let's have this be a little bit more meritocratic. But I, I think there is a fear that in a way that is not really built around long-term U.S. interests, we're yeah. just sort of taking... No, I'm not saying policies. Trump is doing anything right here. I mean, this is obviously yeah. the most stupid, simplistic, you know, uh, this is the schooler movement, right? Uh, you know, we want to see Trump's proof that he graduated from the fifth grade because we're right. doubting it <laughs> but but there may be you know it may produce a conversation that actually is long overdue we'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the tom hartman program and in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport never was intended to be it requires you so get out there get active tag you're it we'll see you tomorrow you've been listening to tom hartman For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.